Well, it's Halloween. If my math is right, that means if we keep doing this podcast for seven years, one year out of seven, we'll actually be broadcasting on Halloween, and that is this podcast. So, I guess I should tell my favorite Halloween story from my youth with my brother Tom Gardner. So, Tom and I were in the back of our car driving to get a costume. Our mom was driving up front. We were going to the five and dime store. Yep, that's a phrase we used back then, the five and dime store. Think of the big box retailer these days. It was probably like a Woolworth back then, and we were just trying to get our Halloween costumes. And I went, and I found one. It was a see-through. I could see a scary mask. And so, I picked that one up, and I believe Tom picked up like an astronaut. He had like sort of an astronaut costume. So, it was one of those where the costume is folded underneath the mask, and it's all in a cellophane cardboard box. And we went through, and we bought those, and we got to the back seat of our car again, and we drove home. And as we started to drive home, I flipped my box over, and I saw a horrendous phrase. It said, girls, five to seven. I was probably about seven years old. And the idea that I'd picked up a girl's costume for a seven-year-old boy, this was about the biggest mistake I think I could have made. And so, I began to whine. I began to say to my mom up front, Mom, I didn't mean to get this. I don't want this one. And as a lot of parents, and now a parent myself, I can understand this, uh, my mother was probably tired, and it had been a long day for her. And so, once we got home, she said, I'll make this right. And in so many words, she simply switched costumes. I was the older child. My brother Tom, if I was seven, that means he was about five. He probably didn't care too much. And so, that Halloween, Gardner Family Pictures will show that Dave, the seven-year-old, was an astronaut, a costume he was pretty happy about. And who's that witch? Who's the little five-year-old witch? Oh, that would be Dave's brother, Tom. Thanks to NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Get the free guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth, at netsuite.com. This isn't some one-size-fits-all software, my fellow fools. No. With industry-specific support for a broad range of business, NetSuite works the way your business works. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. And welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Yep, true story from my youth. And my producer Rick asked, "Is is there not some lesson or message from the story?" And I guess, I guess the clearest thing that comes through to me from that story is just injustice. It's just it was completely unfair. Tom had made a great selection of the astronaut costume, and I had a scary mask that I thought was good. And it just doesn't seem right that in Gardner Family Pictures now, looking forty five years later, we see who was the little witch that year. All right, yep, it is the last Wednesday of the month. It happens to be Halloween. I think we've already covered that, but it's also mailbag on this podcast. It's been a very wonderful and rich month here on the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. One thing I like to do is I like to go back and just see kind of what we did over the course of the month. So this month started with Get Started Investing. And indeed, next week, we're going to close out that two part series with Get Started Investing Part Two of Two. A lot of you have written us emails, rbi at fool.com, and we're going to comb through those and close out that two part series and really trying to get as many people around you started investing as possible. So I'm looking forward to that next week. But that's how we kicked off this month. Then we had the League of Extraordinary Stock Pickers. We had 200 stock advisor picks later. My Thoughts two weeks ago, and then Great Quotes Volume 9 last week, and now here we are, the fifth 
podcast of this month. Yep, the math worked out. Five podcasts in one month. It's time for your Rule Breaker Investing mailbag. And I thought, you know, maybe we should do some thematic thing. Maybe beyond just the cold open I did with my favorite Halloween story of my youth, maybe we should go with sound effects. And then we thought, do we really want to bother our listeners with that all podcast long? So that might be the only scary sound that you hear uh, this week. We'll see what else Rick might have in store. With that said, I thought maybe I should go with like 13 items because 13 is is a scary number. I don't know if we're going to be able to count up that high. I do have a lot of mailbag items. I'm going to go through them as fast as I can. We'll see what we get to. And I like to start off our mailbag every last Wednesday of the month with my hot takes section, looking at some of the tweets that came in for our podcast. Let's go through. I've got four queued up this week. All right. The first one comes from Chris McCullough at North Boy Chris. Chris said, David, please square this circle. Quotes, let your winners run, which is certainly something that I say a lot on this show. That line, square that with, and then he quotes a different line, please take this moment to make sure your portfolio is diversified enough that no one stock's bad day is enough to keep you up at night. End quote. Probably something else I've said a lot on this podcast before. So, Chris says, hey, square that circle, please, because they sound like they contradict each other. So, let me try as best I can to square that circle. So, when I say let your winners run, it does more often than not mean that you're going to end up with some imbalance in your portfolio. Uh, And then, on the other hand, when I say make sure that you're diversified enough so that no one stock having a really bad day makes you feel too bad at night. I think that there's a middle ground there where you're making sure, on the one hand, that you do rule number one, let your winners run high. We've talked about that on this podcast. The six traits, the six hows of rule breaker investing. Rule number one, let your winners run high. It does mean you're going to end up with some imbalance, but I don't want it to be too much for you. So, for some of us, a stock that's, let's say, 25% of your whole portfolio, for some of us, that's way too much. Should never have. For a lot of us, you should never have a stock that's one quarter of your net worth just riding on one company. On the other hand, um, through vast portions of my adult life, I've had situations like that in my portfolio. AOL back in the day was a monster stock. I know there's still some AOL shareholders out there. I'm not sure you own the shares anymore since Verizon, I think, bought AOL. But but uh, for for a long, long time, AOL was a monster winner, and then for a long time, it was kind of a dud. But if you go back to those glory days of the 90s, I had a pretty imbalanced portfolio, and stocks more recently like Netflix are pretty good at unbalancing my portfolio. Now, I'm okay with that. Um, the percentages that I'm talking about in my own life work for me. So, we're not all one-size-fits-all investors. There's no cookie-cutter answer here that really nails it. But, Chris, I'm glad that you kind of brought those two things together, because I do strongly believe in both of them. And so, I would just say, if there needs to be a compromise between those two concepts of letting your winners run high and then not having an imbalanced portfolio, then we should all be trying to hit that golden mean along with Aristotle as best we can. Thank you, Chris. Next hot take in from Andrew Leggett, at Andrew Leggett, a full AU employee. Andrew, great to hear from you, and thanks for writing in. You said, can't recommend the latest at RBI podcast enough. Every investor should encourage at least one non-investor to listen to it, so they can also start their profitable journey. Thank you very much, Andrew. I agree. That was the purpose of Get Start Investing. I think a lot of people who listen to my podcast on a weekly basis, or really any Motley Fool podcast, probably have at least some investment already in the game, or you're interested enough that you're listening to an investment podcast, but there are so many people who are not listening to Motley Fool Investment Podcasts. 
And even if they don't want to listen to our podcast, I sure hope they want to get started investing. So that was the point of that kickoff of that series starting this month. And yes, as I already mentioned, we're going to close it out next month. So thank you, Andrew. We agree. Share it out. Uh, at Anne-Marie BNYC, Anne-Marie below, shared out. At Eric Milton 8, shared this week's at RBI podcast on how to begin investing. So it sounds like one of our listeners shared with Anne-Marie this podcast. She goes on to say, I'm so glad that I learned and have been investing myself for over a year. Everybody needs to know this information. Thank you, Emery. We agree. Great to have you with us. And finally, at Farley KJ, Ken Farley wrote in, How remarkably timely this was. Just weeks ago, my niece was asking me for advice on investing and how to get started. I explained some of these types of things, as well as some of my dumb mistakes. And then he quotes Joseph Conrad, the novelist, Oh, the glamour of youth. And thank you, Ken, for sharing that out as well. So, yes, it's really a month of getting started investing. It's also a month that's been tough for the stock market. I mean, I've had a significant sell off in my portfolio. I don't know about yours. I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit later during this podcast. But it's, it's ironic that I picked this month to get started investing when the stock market has been far more volatile than usual. But you know what? You just never know what's going to come around the corner when it comes to the stock market if you're only looking around the corner. But I hope most of us have learned that it's not about just what's around the corner. It's actually about making a lifetime commitment to being an investor, capital I investor. Getting started investing isn't just something that you're doing here in October, hoping we have a good fall. Nope. You're getting started investing for life, and it gets better and better the longer you do it. And I promise you that's the case. So, for a lot of new investors, a lot of new fools this week, I'm really excited. If you're tuning into this podcast, and I hope you'll enjoy our podcast, closing it out with Getting Started Investing 2 out of 2 next week. All right. With that said, let's get to our mailbag items. Mailbag item number one. And I know often on this podcast, I try to save the best for last. I think that's just good design. You want to. That's why people take top ten lists and they count them down ten, nine, eight, seven. It's much better than going one, two, three, right? Casey Kasem, it was always counting down the hits, but we were counting up to see what was the number one Billboard record this month or whatever it was. That's the way to do shows. But I'm just not doing that this week. I'm I'm going with my best, my favorite, right off the top. Lisa Wharton, thank you for this note. Dear fools, Lisa writes, in your most recent podcast, I was so impressed by your market-crushing returns and felt so lucky to be a fool for over 10 years. My 10-year returns actually match yours because I used to buy every recommendation in your newsletter. I try to hold them as long as I can. I'm getting much better at it over time. I also like the fact that David is a good storyteller. It's fun to listen to the podcast, as well as happy for the amazing returns your services deliver. I have two fun stories to tell, Lisa says. I tweeted the following story, but I'll still still like to tell it again. Here it is. Recently, I had a similar experience like David's in the Conscious Capitalism CEO Conference. I walked into the Medtronic Science and Technology Conference recently. The presenter asked, who's heard of Tencent? The ticker symbol T-C-E-H-Y. Who's heard of Tencent? Lisa says, no one raised their hand. The room was so quiet, you could hear a pin drop. I couldn't believe that no one could answer such a simple question, so I raised my hand confidently and said, I have, and I also own the stock. The company owns WeChat. Lisa goes on, Now, I heard that noise of acknowledgement. A lot of people had actually heard of or used WeChat. Everyone turned around looking at me with admiration, I thought. So, because of the motley fool, Lisa said, I have had many moments like this. I often walk around with my husband, point to a business, and say that I own the stock. That one, like, let's say, Cintas, which is a company that makes professional outfits and uniforms for professionals, or Starbucks, I think we all know what that company does. 
Chipotle, Lululemon, and so on. I own that company. I recognize that brand or that store or that product, and I can tell you something about it. And then Lisa continues, just recently I found that my son's company works for me. My son is a big-time visual DJ in Los Angeles. After graduating from UCLA, among many things that he does, he makes video and also does live mixing for the Drake parties. Parties, I'm sorry to say, I personally have never been invited to. She goes on, A few weeks ago, I decided to attend one of these parties where my son was live mixing the videos he and his partners made. When I walked into the venue, Hollywood Palladium in Hollywood, California, I noticed that everyone who worked there was wearing a Live Nation t-shirt. Later, I found out that Live Nation, ticker symbol LYV, owns 40% of Insomniac Events, which hires my son's company to make those videos. I have to say, I'm a proud owner of LYV stock and now glad that my son works for me. Keep doing the good work. Lisa closes. I have a colleague here at Medtronic who signed up for the Rule Breaker service after he's heard of me talking about stocks. Sincerely, Lisa Wharton. Well, sincerely, back to you, Lisa. I don't think I have to add additional commentary on this particular mailbag item. Those are just two great stories. We love stories in the show, and you tell stories well yourself. Really fun, and I'm glad to know that your son, after you've worked for him for probably a good deal of his life, it's good to know he's working for you. All right, Rule Breaker mailbag item number two from Drake to Drake. Yeah, as soon as I saw Adam Drake had written me, I had to make this follow right after the Drake parties that Lisa just introduced us to. So, thank you for writing in Adam Drake. You said, hi, my name is Adam Drake, and I just finished listening to your part one of Get Started Investing. I've been listening to your podcast for a few months now. I've been much more involved in investing for just about a year and a half now. You discussed in your podcast how to invest $100, $1,000, or $10,000 into the market. And I'll pause for a second and say, that's exactly right, Adam. That's how we did the podcast. We decided, you know, get started investing means one thing. If you have $100, it might mean something different if you have $10,000. So, we tried to cover a range. Anyway, he goes on, but one thing that wasn't discussed about those numbers is how quick do you invest them? For example, my father is a subscriber to The Motley Fool. He's seen my interest in stocks, funds, investing, etc. He's talked about giving me a certain amount to invest in the market to see what I could do with it. And in five years, he takes his money back and I get to keep what I gain. He goes on to say, awesome dad, I know. Anyway, my question is, if I were to have, say, the $10,000 all at once that I could put into the market immediately, do I invest all of it right away on that day? I'm split on it, because one thing you guys talk about a lot, and I hear from a lot of investors, is not trying to time the market, but having time in the market. So, one part of me says, put it all in immediately, so that it has time to grow. But then the other part of me has been watching the stocks I'm interested in for over a year now, and they're definitely are times of dips. So, if I have that $10,000, would it be foolish small f to drop 5k right away in the ones I've researched and hold on to the other 5k, etc. from there. All right, well, let me just tackle that one right away. Great question, Adam, very understandable. And I like to think I'm pretty good at talking out both sides of my mouth, and let's see if I can do that in answering your question, Adam. So, on the one hand, I want to say to you that most studies suggest, and indeed logic suggests, that if the stock market tends to go up over time, the longer you wait, the longer you don't put dollars that you have into the market, the less likely you are to do 
maximally well, right? You want to get dollars right in the market right away because chances are, from one day or month or indeed year or five year period to the next, that it will rise over the course of time. Look at a graph of the Dow Jones Industrial Average over the last century, one of my favorite images, and you're going to see it starts in the lower left and over 100 years it goes to the upper right. So if you wait, if you dollar cost average or move slowly into stocks, you're probably paying an opportunity cost for waiting. That's out one side of my mouth. Now let me go to the other side of my mouth. What I want to say to you here on this side of my mouth is that some of us just don't feel that psychologically willing to kind of put it all in at once. It's very understandable. We're toe dippers. We think in terms of grays or being incremental. Why does the world need to be so binary all the time? Just buy or just sell, black and white? No, there's a lot of grays. And so we've often said for people who feel that psychologically, they just don't want to commit all at once like that. Because after all, if you'd done that two weeks ago, well, the stock market sold off pretty well in the last two weeks. So you'd be a little bit bummed right now. Um, But again, we're not just looking around the corner here. We're making a lifetime commitment to investing. So we're not going to get too hung up on that. But out this side of my mouth to close, I want you to know that we've often talked in the past about buying in thirds. So that means take a third of your amount of money. Let's just say you have $10,000. So take $3,333 and invest it, let's say, right now. Right? Invest a third of it right now in the stocks that you want to buy. And then make a decision ahead of time. Make a commitment to take that next tranche of $3,333 and invest it at the next increment. Let's just say it'll be a month and a half from now, 45 days from now. So here we are at the end of October. So we're saying kind of mid-December, we'll just say December 15th. I don't care where the market is or what you're feeling, you take that second tranche and then you add it. With your first one, you buy some more stocks. And then that last third, you could buy in the new year. Let's just say the first of February, something like that, right? So I'm just giving an example of how we've often coached people who don't feel comfortable going all in at once, uh, who don't want to hear the other side of my mouth talking, saying, hey, you should get your money into the market. The longer you wait, the poorer you'll probably do. And so I hope between these two answers, you have at least one that works for you, if not both. And I want to close by saying, I've done both in my life. Most of the time, I just try to put my money into the stock market and not wait. But sometimes, if I want a bigger position or I believe in a company or something like that, but I would hate to be the guy who buys at the top, and then a month later, I'm like, why did I buy that day? Then I could just buy in thirds, and it makes me feel very comfortable. And often, I'll say to close, which I already said about 30 seconds ago. But now, to double-close, let me just say that, because I double-close a lot on this podcast, let me just say that part of the beauty of investing in thirds, for me anyway, it's always felt like a win, no matter what happens. Let's see if I can play this psychological trick on you. All right, so you put that third in, right? that $3,333, and the market goes up from there. So, what do you start saying? Well, what I start saying is, you know what? I was feeling a little cowardly. I'm darn glad I got some in right away, though, because I, I, I might have waited, but I didn't. I put in some of my money, and look, it's already up. And that should make you feel really good and give you some positive endorphins or whatever those things are that go in our brains and make us happy. So that's one thing, right? On the other hand, let's, let's say the stock market drops. Well, here's the way that this is also a win for you. You know what? I only put a third in. The majority of what I have still is out of the market. I'm glad that I showed some patience since the market dropped. Right, So I really do feel like you can create a psychological win either way. If you're coldly mathematical, you should have just put it all in at once. So 
Adam Drake, I hope that helps. And by the way, great dad. All right, rule breaker mailbag item number three. This one comes from Anthony Corcoran. He's got a great Twitter handle at Euro Oncologist. Excellent, a man doing important work, and I'm sure a lot of people are grateful for your work. Thank you, Anthony. You start training as a urologic oncologist performing robotic prostate, kidney, and bladder removals. I bought Intuitive Surgical. ISRG is the ticker, but sold it after it went from 500 to 600. This is before a split. This is pre-split, but 500, 600, so he made 20% of his money. That's never bad unless it kept going up, which I think Intuitive has. So, Anthony, you go on. I figured my field had adopted it, and I'd simply, quotes, missed the boat. There were no more gains to be had, 500 to 600. And I'd better sell to, quotes, lock in gains. I like how you're using some of the phrases that people frequently use around trading. Fast forward, Anthony says, to May 2017, the month I became a fool. I know this because that's the month when NVIDIA took off. Prior to this date, I was a small f fool, not paying attention to the world around me. The surgical robot I'd trained on for years to master the chip powering the car. I loved the car I loved, Anthony goes on, were innovations that represented my best hopes for our future, but it all just didn't register at the time. More productive than listening to Howard Stern on my hour-long commute, I decided to check out the podcast section in my Tesla and found you and your team. I'd been thinking about how to invest and discovered the chip powering my Tesla was an NVIDIA chip. Ticker symbol, of course, for NVIDIA is NVDA. I wanted to invest, but was unsure. I became a stock advisor and Rule Breakers member. And based on the Best Buys now, I purchased NVIDIA and Netflix, and I haven't looked back. Since then, I've purchased 50 individual stocks. That is tremendous. In rollover IRAs and brokerage accounts, and in beating the market by 27% overall, 46% of my brokerage account, all stock advisor and rule breaker recommendations. He says, except Square. Thank you, Jason Moser. A shout out to JMO there. A sincere thank you. On to my question. I love the market cap game show that we play with Matthew Argusinger once a quarter. He goes, hashtag I got Etsy. So that means Anthony correctly guessed Etsy. Etsy is a company of a very fine rule breaker stock that Matt just continues never to be able to guess the correct market cap for Etsy. So if if you hashtag got Etsy, that means you outdid my friend Matt. Good job, Anthony. I got Etsy. Thinking about stocks based on market cap is a game changer for me. You've taught me to think about the market cap and not the price of the stock. What confuses me then is that if the market cap is such an important metric, why is PE ratio always quoted as the gold standard for valuation? It seems to me if the price of the stock means little compared to the overall market cap, it should be some sort of market cap to earnings ratio that we all care about. Can you explain this? Can you come up with a new foolish metric? Signed, Anthony Corcoran at Euro Oncologist. Thank you, Anthony. All right, so let me just pull a couple things apart here. First of all, we do love market cap. That's why I made a game show around it, and I love that you love it and you're learning from it. It's a great metric. Market caps, again, just kind of the overall price tag of a company, what it would take to buy that company. Now, technically, it's not what it would take to buy the company, because some companies have debt. So, when you buy that company, you're buying the debt along with it. Or some companies have a lot of cash. And so, even though you're paying whatever you did for the stock, if you take out the cash, then that changes the number a little bit. So, 
Enterprise value is a number that people use often to describe how much something's actually worth when you're factoring, let's say, the debt in addition to the price tag of the company. But anyway, I like market cap because it's just kind of simple. And I want you to know, Anthony, that basically market cap over earnings is the price to earnings ratio of a company. I'm not going to get too deeply into the weeds here, but the price per share of a company's stock, let's say a stock's trading at 100, if it has earnings per share of $4 a share, then that's a price-to-earnings ratio of 25. Similarly, whatever the company's market cap is, it's going to be 25 times the gross amount of earnings that that company has. So, what you're describing there is actually kind of how the price-to-earnings ratio works. So, the market cap as a multiple of the earnings itself is kind of that price-to-earnings ratio that you're talking about. Price-to-earnings ratio breaks things down in terms of per share. What's the price per share of the stock? If you took all the earnings of the company and divide by the number of shares, what's the earnings per share of the stock? So, you're actually seeing the same ratio. I'm glad that you noticed that. I'm glad you're poking your head up, looking around, and starting to learn more about these things. I do agree that price-to-earnings ratio is, on the one hand, overrated. A lot of people are always wanting, thinking that there's some good number of price-to-earnings ratio you should pay. Like Some people will say, never, ever buy a stock that's trading at more than 25 times earnings. So People have parameters in their head about what P-E ratios they're willing to pay for companies. But in my experience, it's far better to think long-term and ask yourself, what is the market cap of this company? And how big could I see it becoming? So, if a company like Etsy is somewhere around $4 billion a share today, if you're looking at the market cap, you know, how big could that be? Well, what are some other retailers out there and how big are they? Well, Best Buy. Maybe one day Etsy could grow up and become Best Buy. Best Buy, of course, bricks and mortar, Etsy, more of an online e commerce company, but Best Buy these days is worth about $21 billion. So, you could say, hey, if that ever happened to Etsy, the stock at $4 billion today, that would be a five-bagger from here. I could make five times my money. Now, eBay, which is maybe a little bit better of a comparison, because that is an e-commerce company, eBay is $26 billion today. That's its market cap. Of course, Amazon.com is worth a lot more than that, but Etsy's a much smaller idea, as much as we love Etsy, compared to Amazon. There's no Etsy web services in the cloud, for example. So, I like market cap. You know that I like market cap. We've made a game show of it. I think it's a wonderful way for more of us to think smarter about how we can see our companies growing up or not over the course of time and give a good estimate in terms of where we could ultimately see those stock prices. Again, it's really what venture capitalists do. They say, how much is this small company worth today? How big could I see this becoming down the road? And what's my multiple that I could get? And that's the VC mentality. And you betcha, as rule breaker investors, that's how we think. Thank you, Anthony, for your lovely note. All right, rule breaker mailbag item number four. By the way, I should mention that we've done this podcast every single week since July of 2015. I've kind of lost track, but that's something like 173 or four consecutive weeks without ever taking a break. I am doing this particular podcast with a temperature of about 100 degrees Fahrenheit, so the show must go on. I'm feeling a little punchy at this point in the podcast. I'm possibly TMIing here by telling you that I'm sick as I do this one, but Rick is keeping his distance from me, we're having fun, and we're making sure that every week without fail, we bring you Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. Okay, let's get to Rule Breaker Mailbag Item number 4, and this one comes from Holland. Now, this one comes from Nick S. in Holland, and I'm going to spell his last name S-T-O with what looks like, to me, an umlaut over the O, P-L-E-R. But I looked this up, and I believe that umlaut 
at least in Dutch, is called a trema, T-R-E-M-A, not an umlaut. And it, I do try to pronounce every word on this podcast accurately. That means, since I have people listening around the world, you're often giving me your name, and I hope I'm not doing too bad a job of it. So, I just decided to seek some help internally, so I dropped a note on Slack to my fellow fools earlier, and I just said, hey, how do you pronounce S-T-O-Trema, P-L-E-R in Dutch? And my friend Amber Knudsen here at The Motley Fool, Amber said, well, I just Googled this, and uh, here's a guy with that name, and so here's a video, and here's how it's pronounced. And then all of a sudden, I realized, wait, that's the very guy who wrote me. That, that video that Amber just sent me is my guy, Nick Stupla. Because in the course of this note, as you're going to hear, Nick is a pro bike rider. He's got some fans, and some of those fans do videos about him. So, Nick, thank you for your question. I hope I didn't do too bad a job pronouncing your name. Here is your question. Hi, David. Hi, all. Greetings from a fellow fool from Holland who's been thus far outperforming the market. Thank you for all the content you're providing via your services. I'm very happy with them and use the stock screener as my first filter to pick my stocks. I'm aiming to beat David in his performance in the future. As a pro bike rider, I listen to your your podcasts while out training. Nick goes on, like you, my strategy is buy and hold. With regards to super long-term, what percentage, Nick asks, of listed companies are still around, and what does this mean for the buy and hold strategy? So, for example, companies founded in the early 1900s, I mean, those companies along the way might have been great businesses to own, but how many of those are still around? Eventually, don't disruptive technologies and industries take out a lot of this business in the super long-term? So, Boiling it down, Nick's question, he says, is this, what does this mean for one's investments? Would you not have to sell at some point? In the end, how many businesses, Nick Stobler asks, have eternal life? And the answer is, not many. I mean, history will show there are, I think there's a Japanese company that's been around 800 years or something. That might be the longest running for-profit business in the world. And certainly, we have, both in Europe and the U.S., uh, companies that have been around for more than 100 years. Or if you're a beer company, some of those have been around for several hundred years, because beer is timeless. But it is certainly true, Nick, and all my fellow fools, that many companies end up not living for as long as you or I might want them to live in our portfolios. However, do remember why, in some cases, they disappear. It's not because these companies become irrelevant. They're the buggy whip makers, and then unfortunately, here come cars, and so we don't need buggy whips anymore. Or the people who used to make ice blocks, and then refrigeration shows up and runs us all out of business. Certainly, that does happen. Technology does displace other technologies and improves over the course of time. And as fellow rule breakers, we're always on the hunt. We want to own the companies that disrupt whole industries. And we very often do. And we've talked about those companies almost every week on this podcast, and we love those rule breakers. But Nick, you know, a lot of these companies actually just get bought out by another company. I mean, I'll give you a pretty good example from the last week, Red Hat. Red Hat is a tremendous company. They are basically, for those who understand what Linux is, Red Hat is the open source solution for Linux and the Linux community. An open source business, an amazing business, making a few billion dollars off of something that was free, that's really hard to do in life, and that's what Red Hat has been doing. They're a total value add for the Linux community, constantly upgrading Linux, uh, being a caretaker of it, and trying to add more value than any other players out there in the open source software world. So yeah, IBM came along. 
you probably heard this, snapped them up at a premium of over 60% from one day to the next. On otherwise a very bad stock market day, Red Hat was up. The ticker symbol RHAT. It was on my watch list. I had had my team write it up about a month ago, and now I'm really regretting that I didn't make it my new pick in Motley Fool Stock Advisor. But at the same time, just realize that Red Hat is now gone. And you might think, well, doesn't that mean that it didn't end well? And the answer is it ended very well. It just got bought out by another company. So a lot of companies, in fact, get bought out. Companies like Pixar and Marvel, which Disney bought out from me, some of my best and most favorite picks in Motley Fool Stock Advisor. They don't exist anymore as independent companies, but they're part of a bigger company. So just realize that I don't think any stock probably should be held forever. Once companies get either really, really large to the point that they're not innovating, or if some new technology comes along and disrupts them, yeah, we do try to sell out ahead of those things or not keep owning stocks forever. But keep in mind, even the ones that we buy as small acorns and eventually grow into huge oaks, even those companies can be worth holding on to for your whole life long, because even when they get to be this lumbering big oak, what they usually start to do is pay dividends. They start dropping more acorns your way as a fellow shareholder. And so, in our experience, this can be a wonderful way. You watch your rule breaker grow up and become a rule maker. And if you can hold that stock all the way through, I think you'll often be pleased. So, I hope that that answer makes some sense. A lot of the companies that were around in the original Dow Jones and now aren't there anymore, General Electric isn't now even on the Dow Jones Industrial Average, even though it is still around today. A lot of those companies ended up being great companies, but they got acquired by somebody else, or the world changed in one way, shape, or form. Some companies get taken private these days as well. So just realize there are lots of ways for things to play out. It doesn't just mean when a stock disappears that it died or was bad. Hope that makes sense. And Nick, good luck on your pro bike career. We are definitely pulling for you on this side of the pond. You got a lot of fools cheering you on. And I hope I didn't do too bad a job pronouncing your name. Thank you for writing in. All right, before we go on, support for this podcast and the following message come from NetSuite by Oracle the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Save time and money by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and HR instantly right from your desk or phone. Get the free guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth, at netsuite.com. With NetSuite, you can save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, and accounting orders in HR instantly right from your desk, even your phone. Thousands of the best-known brands and fastest-growing companies use NetSuite to manage their business. And now, it's available to you. Again, that's netsuite.com slash fool. And that must be kismet. What a perfect dovetailing of ad with content, because... Come to think of it, NetSuite was one of my winning stock picks. I really liked NetSuite. It used to be its own independent public company. In fact, I recommended it for Motley Fool Rule Breakers February 22nd of 2012. Four years later, in August of 2016, I'm sorry to say it disappeared from the public markets. Why? Well, you just heard it. Oracle bought out NetSuite. It was an awesome investment for us. It was up 140% as it got bought out, and we exited as rule breakers, but it's not something that disappeared. Nope, they're advertising here on the show a few years later, and it's a part of Oracle, a very vital part of Oracle today. So, kind of a fun example of exactly what I just talked about. 
And in fact, I can think of another podcast advertiser. LinkedIn has been a great advertiser. And boy, was that a raging rule breaker that I recommended multiple times in 2012 and 13. And who bought LinkedIn? I think most of us know these days, Microsoft bought LinkedIn. So a lot of these rule breaker companies are A, great stocks. And while they're public, we own them. We try to, and we hold on to them for as long as they stay. But then they get bought out by somebody else, and we still do pretty well. We exit and we put our money somewhere else. Rule breaker mailbag item number five. This one comes from Anthony Yu. Thanks for writing in, Anthony. You say, Hi there. Thanks for a great episode on investing. That's probably our Get Started Investing episode. He said, For a background on me, I'm a 28 year old. I grew up with immigrant parents that don't know anything about investing and weren't able to teach me anything. Here are my questions that came from that episode, and there are three of them. Number one, if my use case is to buy stocks that I want to hold on to for a long time, why would I use any service besides Robinhood? Robinhood has no fees as opposed to other services like E-Trade. Well, my answer back, Anthony, is without being intimately familiar with Robinhood or really any of the brokers. I mean, we all probably use at least one of them. I happen to use Schwab. But in general, my experience is that if you're going to pay more fees than zero, you're probably going to be getting additional services. So I think at Charles Schwab, there are a lot of kind of financial planning and other, there's a lot of different financial instruments that they have that I can buy through them. So I think that's why I pay up a little bit more for Schwab. But for a lot of people using Robinhood these days, it's a mobile app on your phone. It's a wonderful way to get this new generation of millennials invested. Yeah, you're paying nothing for your commissions. And I, I vote for that all day long, every day. So as long as you're happy with Robinhood, I don't think you need to seek out others that offer more fees until or if you start to wonder, are there more services that I might need? For example, if you have a child, maybe you already have, but you're 28 years old, maybe that hasn't happened yet, you might all of a sudden want to open up a 529 account or something like that. And I don't know how helpful this or that broker or online app might be to help you get squared away on those things. So I think that's kind of how the world works. If you're paying fees, presumably the services are ones you value. But we do come from an era where people were way overpaying for commissions for services that they did not value. That's when we started The Motley Fool in the early 1990s. That's when we were really going after Wall Street in the first decade of our company because there were so many things that were wrong, so many ripoffs for investors. I'm happy to say the world has gotten a lot better for you and me in no small part to things like Robinhood, which is like a way to buy stocks for free these days. Again, we like that here at The Motley Fool. Your second question, you said, I started investing three months ago after a friend told me about Motley Fool Stock Advisor. I've only invested in stocks that have been recommended through Stock Advisor. I hope it works out. But why doesn't Matt pick stocks using Stock Advisor? It makes me have less faith in the product when a Fool employee doesn't use their own product. It's like a Google employee using Yahoo Mail. Well, to answer question number two, Anthony, I don't have Matt with me here. I don't remember Matt saying this, but I think maybe what you took from Matt was that Matt doesn't work on Stock Advisor anymore. He once did work on my Stock Advisor team, and certainly he was doing research and helping me make the picks or think through Best Buy now. But Matt has moved on to Motley Fool Supernova more recently, and so that's where he dedicates his time. And Motley Fool Supernova is a portfolio service that builds portfolios for our members who want a real money portfolio that they can follow and match, but uses Motley Fool Stock Advisor and rule breakers to pick stocks for those portfolios. So let me assure you, Matt is a big fan of Motley Fool Stock Advisor. I'm sure he looks in, if not every day, at least several times a week. So I'm pretty sure 
We're eating our own dog food here at The Motley Fool. A lot of us use Stock Advisor. And then your final question is, what do you think of robo-advising, Anthony writes, like like Betterment? Does Stock Advisor have a better track record? Is it a good tool to use? I currently am splitting my investing between Stock Advisor stocks and Betterment. And the nice thing about Betterment, Anthony says, is someone else is doing the work for me, and I get it to set it and forget it, in quotes. Whereas with my Stock Advisor stocks, I'm checking multiple times a day and worrying if I should be selling or buying more. And that was your final question, question number three. And Anthony, it's another great question. My my feelings back are we're doing something very different with Motley Fool Stock Advisor than Betterment. Betterment is not a service that I've used personally, but my understanding of it is that Betterment is there to help get people, often younger people, started investing, usually in ETFs and funds. Unless things have changed radically, I'm pretty sure Betterment and platforms like it and robo-advising platforms typically don't advise you buying stocks directly. In fact, most of them are just kind of indexing. They don't have opinions on individual stocks. Whereas, we're radically different here at Rule Breaker Investing. This podcast and the services we have at The Motley Fool, we love selecting individual stocks. We believe you'll be rewarded by following a stock advisor because we picked this one not that one. We don't think that all companies are equal, and especially in a world where lots of people are just kind of mailing it in with their ETFs and indexing, they're buying a little bit of every company. And here's the bad news. Not all those companies are great companies. The good news, though, is that by selecting filters, things like Motley Fool Stock Advisor that filter the world for you and help you find the great companies, even if we're wrong sometimes, and it turns out something like GoPro hasn't been that great. That's been one of my dog stock picks and rule breakers. Certainly, you're going to be rewarded, we found, more often than not by selecting individual stocks in a world where many, many other people, the vast majority, are using things like Betterment. Now, that's not to cast aspersions at Betterment. It's a very helpful service for people who in many cases, don't want to spend any time at all thinking about their finances. They just want to have a simple platform they can go in, set it, and forget it, as you mentioned. But we have found, in our experience, 25 years of The Motley Fool, that you can be vastly rewarded for, in fact, leaning in and selecting individual stocks. And I'm not just talking about the returns that you get. I think you become a much more observant person. I think you grow your intelligence, your awareness of new technologies and cultural changes by really asking with Lisa Wharton, who led off this week's podcast, what is that company? I own some of that company. Those are the capital F fools, in my experience, the people who notice a lot more about the world because they have invested in the world. They're not just buying a little bit of everything and saying, I don't care about this, let me go do my job. They're saying, by contrast, part of life, part of the beauty and fun of this whole thing is paying attention and buying pieces of things that I admire, trying to make my portfolio reflect my best vision for our future. So, for a lot of us, capital F fools, we specifically select individual stocks because it's fun and we will be rewarded. We should be more than if we were just, as I've often said, mailing it in. Anyway, mini rant concluded. Anthony, you, thank you for writing in three excellent questions. Rule breaker mailbag item number six. And yeah, let's go overseas once again. Sam Larson, you're writing in, I believe, from the UK. You're a native New Zealander, though, and you say this I'm a native of New Zealand, living in the UK for 18 years. Brexit's thrown the country into turmoil, and as a Remain voter, I've often become caught up in what they call Project Fear. However, listening to you and your guest speakers has had a big impact on my outlook, which is increasingly positive and keen to see the positive opportunities in this process. Speakers such as, and these are all Rule Breaker Investing podcast guests, 
speakers such as Salim Basul, that's the Middleby CEO, Ed Freeman, the conscious capitalist, Kevin Kelly, the author of the book The Inevitable and the co-founder of Wired, Steven Pinker, the Harvard academic who reminds us in his book Enlightenment Now that things really are getting better, and Les McEwen. Yep, Sam calls out Les as well, the author of Predictable Success. All of these have inspired me to think about the future in a more positive light and has taught me a lot about businesses, futurism, and I guess business psychology. Love the show. Keep it up, Sam Larson. Well, thank you, Sam, for sharing your sentiment. And I think it's really important. I think it's especially contrarian these days to think, Things are getting better, not worse. I think a lot of people think the opposite. I did see Steven Pinker. I'm a fan of his. You already mentioned him in your note. And yes, we had him on this podcast earlier this year. It was an excellent, almost hour-long conversation with Steven Pinker. But I just saw him tweet out this week. In fact, it says October 28th, so just a few days ago. He wrote, Part of a growing realization that journalism currently has a negativity bias, which not only causes depression and anxiety, and turns people off from the news, but creates an inaccurate understanding of the world with baleful consequences such as fatalism and radicalism. So that's a strong statement from Steven Pinker, but I think there's a lot of truth in what he says, which is why I retweeted that that day. And I think you and I, Sam, are just reminded that if we remain optimistic, and we really do, with Pinker, count data around us, How much better is longevity these days than one generation ago? And even though there's still a sad amount of poverty in the world, there's a lot less than there was a generation ago. And the list goes on of amazing improvements in health and technology. I mean, electric cars these days, so much better than the cars of my youth. It's pretty remarkable how the world, in my opinion, is getting better almost every day. But as Kevin Kelly has said, just in a little way. And that's why he says we're not living in a utopia, a perfect world. He also says we're not living in a dystopia. Kevin Kelly on this podcast about a year ago said this, we're living in what he calls a protopia. That means it's getting a little bit better every day, but in ways that are so small and almost invisible that from one day to the next, we can't really see it. It's only when you step away and look back 30 years ago and think about the technologies you were using then. There was no such thing as a smartphone back then. I do remember my first car phone. It was pretty large to hoist that up onto my shoulder while I was driving my car. It wasn't probably very safe, but that's where mobile phones were located back then. They started, in a lot of cases, just in people's cars. Anyway, how much better have things gotten in that one little area and then a thousand others? So, yes, I do believe, and this also speaks to Anthony's question earlier about why pick stocks versus Betterment, I truly believe you will be lavishly rewarded for your patience and your optimism if you just maintain both. All right, and the last one this week, Rule Breaker mailbag item number seven. This one comes from Ben Adams. Ben writes, Hi, David. Given the recent market pullback and resultant impact on my and undoubtedly every other Rule Breaker's portfolio, I'm going to pause the text there for a sec. Absolutely, Ben. My portfolio has been pretty much whacked. I think I'm down about 15 or 20% just in the last month or so. That's a pretty bad month. And so I definitely want, I'm glad you wrote because I wanted to speak to this at least briefly on this particular episode. Anyway, you continue. I thought I would share my story of how I've learned to embrace market volatility and control my emotions. I graduated university in 2006. That's college for you Americans. 
I now imagine that I should have been faking my British accent because Ben is very likely from the UK, but I don't know, maybe he's Australian as well. Anyway, Ben, I'm going to go with UK, but I'm going to stick with my American accent as I read. And diligently, you wrote, began saving in an ISA cash account like a Roth IRA. Yep, pretty sure this is. Great Britain. I'm a pretty disciplined guy, automated this right away, shopping around for the best rates. I'm content watching my modest savings trickle upwards. Again, that was as of 2006. That's how Ben got started. Now, fast forward to 2009, he writes, Financial crisis. I lose my job. Thankfully, I had followed my dad's advice and ensured I had an emergency savings fund. Thanks, Dad! However, around this time, I realized that all the news seems to focus on the stock market, and I begin to take an interest in this quotes, financial apocalypse happening before my eyes. Fast forward now to summer 2012. By now, I've watched the market grow for a couple years. I've continued to save, and I'm ready to make my first investment. I'm a digital designer, and 3D printing comes with the territory. I see its potential. I buy 3D systems. The very next day, it drops by 6%. I'm the worst investor in the world. I hold, and by the end of the year, I can't believe my luck. I'm the best investor in the world. Yep, 3D Systems, which has been overall an underperformer for me as a stock advisor pick, a very volatile one, but at one point it was a monster winner. It certainly had a great 2012, so well done, sir. Over time, Ben goes on and begin to diversify, adding the likes of GoPro, some graphene stock I'd read about online, seemed like a good idea at the time, he writes. I'd always plotted the progress of my savings in a spreadsheet, which until now had been a pretty linear, if unexciting, climb upwards. I watch my portfolio daily and berate and congratulate myself with every twist and turn of Mr. Market. Again, that's Ben in 2012, now 2014. I get into rule breakers. This, of course, dramatically improves my stock picking, but just as importantly, thanks to the wisdom of you and your team, I begin to realize the importance of controlling my emotions, and I realize that when you have a long-term mindset, the daily movements really don't matter. So, here's what I decide to do, Ben says, and still do to this day. I make a rule with myself. Unless actively buying more stocks, I'm only allowed to check my portfolio balance once a week. Before the market opens, on a Monday morning. This figure gets recorded in my trusty spreadsheet. This data is converted into a line graph showing my progress against time. But here's the kicker, Ben says, the only figures informing the line graph are the mid-year and end of year. So, just two figures a year. And guess what? My line graph is pleasingly stable. So, whenever the market bounces dramatically, either up or down, I take a look at this chart and remind myself, it doesn't really matter. I can look back at weekly figures going back 12 years if I want to see previous volatility that I've survived, or I can turn off the financial news, look at my line graph, and just smile. Oh, and guess what? I still hold 3D Systems and GoPro. And I'm glad you're able to smile because those have been two of my poor stock picks. But Ben, thank you for sharing. He goes on to say simply, many thanks to you and your team. I hope this thought may be of use to my fellow rule breakers. Full on, Ben Adams. Well, Ben, I can't think of a better note to close on because it's been a very volatile week, really a very volatile month for the stock market. And yet, now I realize you haven't even noticed. I mean, you're just checking in early Monday mornings, seeing where your portfolio is. That's it for the week. And then only twice a year do you type in your spreadsheet and plot a line graph of how you're doing. And I think that that is a very healthy approach to the markets. As I've often said in the past, I love to follow the markets. Just like I follow sports teams, teams that I enjoy sports from one day to the next. I love following the statistics and the box scores and the news. Um, It's the same for me with the stock market. But just like with sports, I'm not changing my favorite team 
based on what just happened last game. And if we have a bad season, like a bad bear market, I'm going to be staying with that team all the way through. And I've been richly rewarded for doing so. And Ben, now I can see I'm not the only one who gets it. I never thought I was, but it's a delight to see you and your journey that you're sharing with us now, 12 years later from where you've been. And I call you, sir, a capital F fool. I dub thee fool from across the pond. Thank you, Ben Adams. It's a delight to be able to call you a fellow rule breaker. All right, that's it for the month of October. Thank you very much for joining us all October on Rule Breaker Investing. As I mentioned, next week, it's going to be Get Started Investing Part 2 of 2. I'm going to be bringing my talented team back. We're going to be adding a Canadian friend of ours, and we're going to nail as many of your great questions about getting started investing as possible. And you know what? It's a great time to get started investing. In the meantime, fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.